welcome to the Think MHK podcast presented by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. On this podcast, you will hear about a variety of local matters pertaining to the business community. You also hear from local business owners to hear their story and gain valuable business insights. Thanks for tuning in today. Welcome to a special Think MHK podcast. My guest for today is somebody that's normally one of my co-hosts, uh, Darren Solden, our Director of Economic Development at the Manhattan Area Chamber. Hey, Darren. Hey, Jason. Interesting sitting on this side of the table today. I know. That's you know, a little peek inside the inner workings of the Think MHK podcast. Normally, you are on this side of the table, and we have a guest sitting on the other side of the table with with our producer, Dave Lewis. But today, you are uh, the one under the microscope, and so uh, you're sitting on the other side. Here I am, on the <laughs> other side, ready to answer the hard-hitting questions. All right. Well, so in in all seriousness, we are here today to talk about a serious subject, and and that is uh, an update on the Scorpion Biological Services Project. And and of course, we're in the last episode of season two of the Think MHK podcast, and and we've had a quite a bit of dialogue during this season about Scorpion. It was announced early in the process. Um, we had several episodes where we discussed the inner workings of how that came to be, but. But we've recently come across a scenario where we're starting to get a lot of phone calls and people that are interested in in updates and what's going on. And and one of the things that, that I think you and I have discovered is the longer that we go on, and we knew this was going to happen probably to some degree, uh, but we tend to see a little bit more information that let's just to be fair or to, or to maybe be as nice as possible uh, may not be completely accurate. Um, and so I think we wanted to take the opportunity to discuss the project, maybe get an update on where we were in terms of size, but also maybe clarify some of the information around the uh, project development. Give us a project description uh, as about the project and what's going on at the location there at Excel Road in US 24. So Scorpion Biological Services plans a commercial scale production facility. Uh, so it's biomanufacturing is what will be going on there. Uh, that ultimately is the production of uh, things like FDA-approved vaccines, other medicines derived from living cells, biological processes. So uh, those are called biologics. So anytime you hear reference to vaccines or, or biologics, that's what's going to be produced there. But unlike MBAF, there's not any live organisms or anything like that. That's been a question, right? Yeah, it has been, and, and I think that's something to be very clear. This is not a this is not a research facility in the vein of NBAF. This is a, a biomanufacturing facility. Um, you're not talking about bringing live pathogens in in in, in quantity like they're doing at NBAF and testing on on animals or anything like that. This is this is purely um, vaccine and biologics production. In fact, I've heard some of the individuals associated with the project say, if we have any live organisms in the plant, we're in trouble. We have to shut the plant down. We can't operate. Yeah, they're they're operating is more about keeping things out that could potentially contaminate the process than it is and bring anything in. So it's a very clean process. Think about uh, production in clean rooms, very controlled environment um, across a number of different factors, but but the importance of clean controlled environment is paramount to what they're going to be doing. And they will be, or at least they're planning to create a number of jobs around this project as well, correct? Absolutely. The project is incredibly impactful. Uh, when fully operational, uh, talking about over a $650 million capital investment in building and equipment and uh, and everything associated with that, and then over 500 jobs. And, and not just any jobs, really good paying jobs and uh, over a $75,000 uh, annual salary 
average. Uh, and so I think within our market, that's going to be very impactful. Uh, but also, as you look at a more broad uh, economic standpoint, this is an industry that's growing significantly. Obviously, you've had a, a large amount of uh, production capacity that was built out in response to COVID and generating COVID vaccine, uh, COVID-19 vaccines. But across the world, uh, development in biologics and, and then within the United States, specifically the return to domestic production and, and bringing that production back onshore in the United States is what's really driving a lot of this kind of development. And so it's an exciting time for our region, uh, not just the impact of the project and the, and the salaries and wages associated with those new jobs being created, but the fact that it's in an industry that's growing and has an incredibly uh, bright and prosperous future ahead. And of course, the 75,000 is well over 150% of our current average. Um, but, but it's not a scenario where they're just coming in and saying, we're going to try to find 500 people. You and some other people on our economic development team are working pretty extensively with them on on what they can do to develop their own pipeline. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, pipeline is going to be vitally important in all of this. Um, th the great news is that so many of the the jobs that are associated with this type of a facility um, are ones that someone can go get technical training on, and and whether it's changing a career or building upon an educational background they have, for example, a, a biology um, or a chemistry major that that would have an opportunity to go work in in the analytics lab type of setting or or in a production management role. Um, there's training you can get. So working closely with Manhattan. Manhattan Area Technical College, working closely with Kansas State University um, on developing the educational resources that will ultimately support that pipeline. And it really is, again, exciting from an economic development standpoint for our region because this is a great opportunity. Projects like this uh, are a great opportunity for us to retain talent. Um, and talent's so important to our to our future. As we grow jobs, you've got to have the talent to fill them. And so whether it's a transitioning military member that Fort Riley is their last duty station in the United States Army, and they transition out and see this great opportunity, they enjoy living here. Uh, this is home when they transition, and um, they have a great opportunity to go into into a, something where the salary is very competitive and, and where it's a field with a lot of uh, opportunity professionally. Uh, they hopefully will be able to do that by going through some training programs at one of our uh, academic institutions and get into a get into a great professional career. And so whether, again, Fort Riley, uh, soldiers, transitioning family members, Kansas State University graduates or graduates from other universities across the state and throughout the region, creating that pipeline, retaining that talent in this area and giving them great professional opportunities is going to be a, a really long-term benefit of this project. And while you never know for sure what happens, these these are the kind of projects where you create jobs and you create training programs and then recruiting efforts to keep get people into those programs where you actually see more projects tend to, to follow up and you build clusters in these different kinds of industries. Absolutely. Long term, long term, a, a cluster of these types of companies um, and not just on the private sector side. You look at work that's going on at the university. You look at work that's going on at NBAF. There is some, you know, from a skill set standpoint, there's there's some overlap there. Um, the more of a cluster we can establish here with the resources and the pipeline to support it, the, the better off all of those folks that are doing hiring. It'll become easier for them to attract talent here, retain talent here. One other I uh, issue on the hiring side that I've heard is this idea of Scorpion's going to come in and immediately hire 500 people. That's actually going to be over a period of time, correct? They're not 
they're not anticipating coming in, having a career fair and saying, we're going to hire 500 people next week. It's it's a longer process than that, right? It, it is. You're talking about, uh, obviously, it's a significant construction process to begin with, but then uh, there's a multi-year job ramp associated with the hiring. So yes, it's the impact will, will not be immediate on the local labor force and the employment market. And obviously, it'll take some time as well to to build out some of the the pipeline of talent that Scorpion and other employers that are that are looking for that kind of talent will be hiring. So Darren, as we've talked about before, this was a highly competitive project. There were it was a 27 state initial search. Eventually it got down to two or three states in that through that process. We were always the only community uh, in Kansas that had made the initial cut. But but talk uh, talk a little bit about how incentives are applied, why we include incentives, and then maybe walk through the incentive package that was that was put forward on the Scorpion project. From an incentive standpoint, there's there's a couple different components. One is the competitiveness. Uh, obviously, economic development is a very competitive uh, business, and and communities, states, uh, regions compete against each other for for these highly impactful projects. Uh, there's a reason they do that. The long-term benefit of projects like this are uh, are not just measured in the millions or hundreds of millions, but are literally in the billions of dollars over over the next uh, 20 years or so. And the economic impact analysis that, that we've had a third party do so far on this project bears that out. So the long-term benefit to to the city, the county, the the region, and the state is is immense. And so uh, it creates a very competitive market to get these types of projects. Uh, within that competition, you know, there are some pretty regularly used tools. Uh, tax abatements are one of them. Some states use tax tax increment financing. Uh, in our case here, uh, a tax abatement is part of the incentive package. And so uh, what that's doing is abating property tax uh, over a period of 10 years. Uh, the good news on that is that currently the, the property where that is being built generates uh, very little property tax. It's it's taxed as agricultural land and, and its valuation is, is very low as such. Um, whereas uh, upon completion, depending on the, on the valuation, uh, you're talking about about um, millions and millions of dollars of annual property tax revenue generation. Um, and that's not just to the city, but also to the county as well and the school district. So uh, that impact will be significant once that property is fully on the tax rolls. Uh, another component of economic development incentives that that is frequently utilized in projects like this, and we utilized it in, in this case, is the city of Manhattan has economic development fund dollars uh, that are generated through sales tax that are set aside to support job creation and uh, an investment in the in the community for these types of projects. And so there is a um, forgivable loan that has been utilized uh, uh, similarly in past projects where there's a uh, uh, the job creation component of the project, in this case, over 500 new jobs, again, with an average salary of over $75,000. And that company uh, we'll get credit for those uh, jobs as they're as they're created, and and there's a financial incentive on the on the front end for bringing those jobs to the community. Uh, again, the economic impact long term of those you're talking uh, when fully operational, um, approximately thirty seven million dollars a year in payroll that's going that's not currently existing in our in our region that's going into the local economy, and you extrapolate that out. Those are on the five hundred approximately five hundred direct jobs. You extrapolate that out to include the seven hundred indirect jobs that are anticipated from this project, uh, add that all up, you're talking about over a billion dollars, in fact, about $1.3 billion um, just in salaries and wages going into our local economy over the next 20 years. So as you can see, that has the potential to be uh, 
significantly impactful and and something that it's the investment on the front end. That's why uh, the city has economic development fund dollars for incentives and and um, and uh, we were able to be competitive on this project. And we also had Pottawatomie County that participated this year. Uh, really in a significant way for the first time uh, that we're aware of, at least in an economic development project. They did. And and the commitment there, and, and uh, see they have, they've passed a resolution of intent to consider economic development incentives uh, for this project as well. Uh, you know, I mentioned that, that when fully operational, the property tax revenue generation um, is, is well into the multi-millions of dollars a year, uh, per year, uh, just to the county. And so, appreciate the Pottawatomie County Commission's uh, forward-thinking views on that uh, uh, inclusion of economic development incentives and Pottawatomie County economic development, uh, as well as uh, county administration. Uh, there's a significant amount of work that goes into the details associated with these types of projects. Uh, everything from from um, the recruitment piece to you know, currently there's a lot of work going into the development agreements and and the public processes that are associated with approving those incentives, uh, not to mention the work being done by a number of, of folks associated with uh, site improvements and, and everything else that has to happen to ultimately prepare the site, the finances, and and the um, the local environment for the project to be built. So let's, let's talk about, so Pottawatomie County committed $5 million, and they'll be taking that up at some point. Uh, maybe have by the time somebody listens to this, so hopefully that that's a positive. But um, but let's let's go, let's talk a little bit about the property tax impact. So the first year that this is off the tax rolls, Pottawatomie County has committed five million dollars to the project. The first year that this is on the tax rolls, the estimated property tax paid by this by Scorpion or the developer who owns the building will be how much to that will go to Pottawatomie County? In excess of $4 million. Basically, in one year, they will make back what they committed to the project. That's and, and then going forward, for so, so if you're looking at this in a 20-year window, 10 more years, that's $40 million. Correct. So $45 million to get 40 in a 20-year period seems like a fairly good rate of return for, for a county. Uh, but also, and, and let's talk about this for a minute, um, Pottawatomie County is unique in the fact that, first of all, they have one of the lowest property tax rates in the state of Kansas, uh, which is incredible, and, and we applaud them for that. But but a lot of the reason for that is because they have a huge taxpayer located uh, in the eastern part of the county. Talk a little bit about Jeffrey Energy Center and what impact that is on the Pottawatomie County budget. Jeffrey Energy Center, um, the Evergy operates that um operates that facility. Um, if you look at Pottawa, the breakdown of Pottawatomie County's um, ad valorem property tax on a on an annual basis, um, the property tax generated off of that Jeffrey Energy Center property uh, is over 51% of the total property tax collected in the entire county. Um, which, to your point, allows the county to do some things from a budget standpoint and otherwise um, uh, from a mill levy and, and taxing standpoint that allows property tax to stay low. And we've seen a significant amount of residential development um, into Pottawatomie County, and, and, and that's obviously uh, something that's helped drive a fair amount of that growth. Uh, at the same time, uh, there's some new legislation that's that came along last year uh, that uh, that probably expedited the um, ability of, of uh, coal plants like Jeffries to 
the folks that operate those to take some of those offline. And so, um, you know, there was an announcement last year that by 2030, um, one of the three units at Jefferies would be coming offline. And so, you know, you start to look down the road a little bit, there, there is definitely some concern that, uh, that uh, as as those types of properties are valued uh, and they are they are generating less energy, fewer units, um, fully functional, that 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 valuation of that property will probably go down. When that goes down, obviously the property tax revenue generated off of it goes down as well, assuming the mill levy stays the same. So, you know that raises a question um, as we look forward the next five, ten years of of where will where will Pottawatomie County make up that uh, that potentially lost revenue generating additional uh, valuation within the county, which projects like um, especially commercial and industrial projects because the way that the state of Kansas uh, applies valuation uh, to where to where it's uh, at a significantly higher percentage two to three times more um, on commercial industrial property than it is on residential property you really need to have residential and industrial growth to generate more property tax revenue for the county and so we believe that this type of a project will will help drive that and will help make up that help make up um, a portion if not more of that difference uh, but also allow for for the infrastructure and the um, other expenses that come along with with the residential growth out into the county that's currently going on and we anticipate will continue to go on for for a long time into the future. So to be clear, and and if you are someone who is interested in tax policy and, and the math on these things, Jeffrey Energy Center will be decommissioning part of its plant. Jeffrey Energy Center will be asking for reduction in property taxes. So in order to maintain services, there will be a, an amount of money, probably in the millions, that the existing Pottawatomie County residents and businesses will have to uh, pay to overcome that deficit unless they can add valuation in an amount that can overcome that deficit. If you look at the the plans that the city of Manhattan was doing as they were planning their growth and they looked at, at the Blue Township area, Scorpion by itself is about a 25-year uh, projection. So the, uh, in order to get as much investment as, as we're getting in the Scorpion project, the estimates based on previous history were it was going to take 25 years to get that. So this is a scenario where Jeffrey Energy Center will be reducing at the time Scorpion is coming online. They can easily fit in, fill that gap that's necessary where you see the reduction. And, and in essence, there won't be a negative impact in theory, on the existing Pottawatomie County taxpayers. That's correct. Very, very succinctly said. I don't know about succinctly, but um, it, it works for my simple mind. The other issue is sales tax. And, and you know, we talk about the, the ROI. You, you mentioned briefly the amount of the, the new income that's going to be generated. Now, that's new dollars into the community. So $35 million annually that's brought into the community that will be spent in many cases locally. Um, but but in terms of sales tax, Pottawatomie County has a sales tax component, and I believe close to 50% of it, too, is generated in Blue Township, correct? Correct. Uh, n- nearly 50% of the, I think the number is about 45% of the sales tax generated in Pottawatomie County that goes back to the county um, is is generated in the part of the county that actually is within the city limits of Manhattan. 
there. So the south, very southwestern part of Pottawatomie County. You know, I think that's important for a couple reasons. One, obviously, that is a major retail hub, um, not just within Pottawatomie County or Manhattan, but within the region. That's an area that pulls, you know, just all you have to do is go look at, drive through some of those parking lots, uh, the, the restaurants and the retail stores over there and look at the license plates and see all the different counties that those folks are coming from. So, so that's significant. The fact that we know that as new residents move to the area, we know that as uh, folks are here during the construction period for the project and they've got to go play to eat and they've got to go places to to buy things and they have to go places to to um, you know recreate we know that a lot of that is going to be happening within Pottawatomie County maybe happening in the state limits of Manhattan but it's happening within in in many cases within Pottawatomie County uh, why that's so beneficial to the county is that the county has a one cent sales tax um, that ultimately goes back to the county and then each of the municipalities within the county see a percentage of that based upon population and um, property valuation so at the end of the day, um, whether you're in Wamigo or St. Mary's or Nega, Westmoreland, St. George, and any of the municipalities in the county um, are seeing benefit from that every single year. And that's a very unique situation. It's not something that you see in a lot of uh, counties that that have uh, as much rural area as, as Pottawatomie County does. But that ability to leverage all of that retail activity that goes on there along that Highway 24 corridor going out the east side of Manhattan uh, is is very valuable to the county, and of course, we would expect that that those numbers will only get boosted when you start talking about about that additional, you know, that additional thirty seven million dollars a year in in um, in payroll and the impacts of the construction period and just the additional activity that will go on because of this project. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a minute. So you're you're a former chamber exec in Wamigo, so this is something that that you have intimate knowledge of, not just from working for us, but but your history. So I go eat at Cox Bros, which is one of my favorite eating establishments, and that's in Pot County. So I, I buy a baked potato with uh, with barbecue on it and spend 10 bucks. It's never 10 bucks, by the way, but let's just say for sake of math, it's 10 bucks. Good, because I don't want to do the difficult yeah, yeah. math on it. So, so there's sales tax on that uh, baked potato of about ten cents. I guess if I'm doing my doing my math correctly, um, there's a percentage of that goes to St. Mary's. There's a percentage of that that goes to Wamigo. There's a percentage of that that goes to Westmoreland because the county splits its sales tax, and that's a state statute, correct? That that requires them to do that. So, what would be the annual amount of sales tax that a community like Wamigo? gets off of the sales tax that the Pottawatomie County sales tax. Uh, you're talking about around a million dollars in sales tax annually that's going to the And to be to fair, some of that's of generated in Wamigo. Correct. Absol- absolutely. Absolutely. But, but half of that almost is is generated in Manhattan. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And within the city limits of Manhattan, again, you take that area there that that um, um, on, on the very east side of Manhattan where there's a lot of retail, there's there's car dealerships, there's restaurants, there's there's some large box retailers, there's some, some locally owned retailers. But yeah, there's a, a significant regional hub of retail and, and the entire county uh, in Pottawatomie County benefits from that. So you would assume you drop 35 million new dollars into Pottawatomie County gets that some of that's going to get spent in Pottawatomie County. So it's not just Blue Township, Manhattan, or even St. George or Westmoreland or Wamigo that benefits. It's the entire county is going to see some financial return on this project. Absolutely. Absolutely. So whether it's, whether it's the, the portion of property tax that's going 
directly to the county um, uh, general fund as as a, a part of their property tax collection. Um, you know, the increased valuation off of this facility will drive that. Or it's the additional people that will drive sales tax, um, both during construction and also as the as the facility comes on online and becomes fully operational. In both cases, uh, the entirety of the county will see benefit from the project. Significant benefit. Of course, Manhattan will too. And that brings me to uh, my next point, and that's annexation. Um, this was uh, a site that was not in the city limits, uh, but the project required that it be annexed into the city limits. And so we went through an island annexation process. Um, and, and congratulations, I know you worked really hard to make sure that happened. But talk about why it had to be annexed. And, and th- is that part of a larger strategy or is that, in, you know, at least in your mind for right now, kind of a standalone decision? Yeah, I think for for the time being, a standalone decision, it was essential for this project. And at the end of the day, and that's a question we've gotten a lot from a lot of different different folks. Um, you know, the and it's it's really a, a pretty uh, a simple answer. Uh, you know, a, a multi hundred million dollar investment in a facility, uh, you're producing something in that facility that goes out that's worth multi hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, obviously insurance and security, uh, play a major role in, in, um, in the decisions made and those that are associated with that kind of investment. And so ultimately at the end of the day, um, the, the folks that are insuring that property and insuring that facility, um, need it to be have city services so you th- start thinking about things like uh city fire and and the and the fire rating uh that the city brings with it uh think about uh police services and the and um and, and what that entails and so ultimately uh the annexation component of this was was absolutely necessary to um, make that site uh, functional for the company and make that site functional for the kind of work that they're going to do there. Um, all that was annexed through that process was the parcel that the project will be built on um, and and the um, adjoining um, road right away on Excel Road. And so the city will take over maintenance of Excel Road there from Highway 24 up to the north edge of the site. Um, which saves Pottawatomie County money. Which which does. And 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 obviously the city will, will have to play a very significant role in, in improvements made along that stretch of road too, which which we'll talk a little bit about, I assume, as we talk about some traffic. But uh, yeah, so at the end of the day, that that annexation was done as an island annexation, simply the parcel that the project will be built on. Um, and and obviously there've been additional conversations at the city level. There was a there was a kind of a cost benefit analysis that was that was done um, as it relates to annexation over over in that part of the the county going east out of the city of Manhattan. But um, as it relates to what was currently done, it was done for the project and just the parcel that that uh, will be built on. And we've looked at this a lot lately in terms of the property tax and the distribution between the different governing entities. And we're unique in Manhattan and and Raleigh County with the RCPD uh, arrangement. Uh, And so RCPD gets most of the city's property tax allocation. In fact, the uh, city itself relies more on sales tax than property tax. And so the idea of, of annexing it, yeah, there'll be some property tax benefit, but most of the benefit the city's going to get from Scorpion will be in sales tax. And so there's no grand, in your opinion, in my opinion, there's no grand plan to go out and annex a lot of, of that property because uh, at the end of the day, the city doesn't necessarily reap enormous amount of, of revenue, particularly as it relates to then netting out services. Uh, from from annexing a lot of property anyway. Yeah, and that number's somewhere in the 13 
13 cents on a dollar or 13% range as far as the the amount of every dollar of property tax revenue. Oh, I think it's actually um, 11. I'd collected. see even less, it, than that. less than that. Yeah. So yeah, that, that actually goes to the actually goes to the city general fund. Um, I think another thing to to clarify because this is a question that's come up as it relates to property tax is that is that um, by annexing this uh, the city is not stealing a significant sum of property tax from the county. Um, I think that's one thing to be very clear on. Obviously, that there is a portion of the property tax, which I think is approximately $4,000 a year right now that's being generated off that particular parcel um, that goes to things like like the the rural water district and the and and the um, the township fire and and those sort of things, the, the county road and bridge um, fund. Uh, but but you're talking about a a very small amount compared to four million dollars worth of um, property tax generation to the county uh, down the road when that property is fully on the tax rolls and so fully developed and on the tax rolls. So uh, you know, I just to clarify, this isn't having any direct impact on if you live uh, uh, live in a house in Blue Township in Pottawatomie County. There, this is not impacting your mill levy or your tax rate, uh, what you pay in property taxes, um, and it's not creating a situation where the county is is uh, seeing any shortfall in their property tax collection that has to be made up somewhere else. And so real quick before we, I think, move on from the, the economic impact, there will obviously be a lot of impact during construction and some things that most people or a lot of people may not think about. We do, obviously, because we also do tourism at the chamber, but uh, you'll have a lot of construction workers. You'll have a lot of hotel room nights. Uh, construction period right now is estimated three to five years, mm-hmm. right? Depending Correct. on how they they advance forward. So, uh, any other uh, areas where maybe we're going to see impact that we haven't talked about? Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a direct impact to the immediate area. Obviously, you start thinking about construction work, and and you know if you have a if you've got a lunch break and you've got a Defined time that you can take that lunch break or, or a period during your shift, um, you're probably not going to go too terrible far. And so, uh, you know, there's this, again, I think very beneficial to the county. There's a significant amount of of uh, of uh, opportunities out uh, in in that area to eat, and and I would imagine that those places will see a see a fair amount of business. Um, you mentioned things like room nights, right? That matters. You're you're going to have. We saw this with NBAF during a construction process. You know, there's there's enough folks that come in for a period of time and are regulars that they have to be housed someplace within the community. Extend some some of the um, uh, some of that ends up being in our hotels, extended stay hotels, and so um, there's some collection of transient guest tax off of that 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 ultimately benefits the benefits the city as well. So yeah, that impact goes more than, it, it's more than, think about it in terms of, of uh, because you've got some very specialized work that's going on too. You've got some folks that are coming from outside the area. Obviously, you know, we, we think that there'd be a significant number of local contractors and and service providers that are used ultimately for the work as well. But uh, but you're going to be bringing in, like NBAF, not, not to the scale necessarily of NBAF numbers wise, um, but you're going to be bringing in some very specialized folks. Um, uh, they're going to be here for a period of time uh, for outside the community, and that's going to provide an immediate bump uh, economically here. People smarter than me have figured these formulas out, but the estimate is about a thousand new residents 
uh, in relation to this project as well, correct? Total, yeah. So, so just to run through some of those numbers really quick about, so we're just over 500 new employees when fully operational, um, about another 700 indirect jobs. So you start thinking about when you add 500 people to the market um, and, and making that wage, what other growth in retail and service and, and everything else does that support related to that, specifically to that project? Uh, again, that totals out to, to over a um, billion dollars worth of worth of impact just from salaries and wages over the next 20 years. Um, but then taking that taking that even a step further, yeah, over a thousand new residents, you start talking about a significant number of kids in the area school districts uh, that that adds, uh, um, over a hundred new homes um, to, would be built just specifically related to the new folks coming in because of this, because of this project. So it's going to drive uh, a number of economic impacts, but those aren't always direct. Some of that, some of that we'll see um, on down the road. So whether you're building houses or you're providing a, a service or um, uh, any number of things, you can see some benefit from this project. Let's talk a little bit about maybe some perceived negative impacts. Um, you know, and, and I'm not going to say that there aren't, a, there aren't some, but maybe not quite as much as what we're hearing. And, and I don't want to make light of any of these things because there are people who care about it and are passionate about it. And, they're, they're, and we want to make sure that people are safe and, and can drive to work safely and get home safely. But uh, there are a lot of people now, Darren, who think that you're trying to make their commute time uh, significantly harder than it used to be, that, that uh, for whatever reason you've decided you want to make sure that US 24 is full of traffic 24 hours a day. Uh, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I would just say that ultimately a project like this um, especially if you start looking and comparing to other potential development. I mean, I think that Highway 24 corridor, just look at the last 20, 30 years as it continues to move east, that, that corridor will continue to develop. It is it is prime real estate for development. Um, commercial, industrial, obviously housing within that corridor, uh, all, all of the above. Um, this particular project is probably about as high economic return with as low impact as, as we can find. Uh, obviously, compare it to a, uh, if you compare it to an industrial manufacturing uh, scenario where there are a significant number of inputs being brought in on large trucks on a daily basis and 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 com finished product being shipped out on large trucks, that's just not what this is. So, um, so let's talk about that yeah. for a minute because I don't, I don't want to lose sight of that because sometimes we tend to talk in, cliche, in, mm -hmm. in technical terms that you know, I want to be, I want to be very blunt on this. So we're talking about making vaccines. Now, vaccines, in by itself is a very small product. Correct. So what I heard um, the gentleman say at one of the community sessions was you can basically send 30 days worth of vaccines out in a 10 liter bottle. Is that is that the same thing you heard? Correct. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So basically a 10 liter bottle fits in the back of a truck. Yep. So if you look at, at a lot of our manufacturers, and, and by the way, the, our great manufacturers, right? I mean, Manco Window ships windows and Florence ships, cluster boxes, and those kind of things. Those products are are fairly substantial. Correct. And so when you're shipping those, you're shipping those on a semi-truck. Uh, think think when, about buckets leaving Wamigo from from Caterpillar, right? I mean, massive buckets, you might fit three or four of those on the on the back of a flatbed semi. Correct. So in this scenario, you're maybe in a van, I guess, probably some specialized van that 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 can transport. Because as you said, you have a $200 million worth of vaccine in a 10-liter bottle. You don't want that broken. Um, no, so no, I'm no. sure that there's some way that they're not putting that on back of a flatbed and, and shipping it down the road. There is a, there's a vehicle that, that, that they're shipping that in. That's probably much smaller than a semi, many fewer 
actual trips than than you would otherwise. And so that's one area. Then the inputs, most of the input in a vaccine is actually water. And water is not shipped in. Water is piped in. Piped in. And so uh, you don't have the inputs going in as well. So when we say there aren't going to be a lot of trucks, there aren't going to be a lot of trucks. You're, you're gonna, the trucks will be a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but... What do you think? I think you. I heard you say the other day maybe five a week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say a handful, right? And and um, and at the end of the day, then you, you're also again, I compare it to I think you know a heavy man, a heavy industrial type of facility where everything comes in on a semi truck, everything goes out on a semi truck, and there's waste product as well, right? Um, and it's or, multiple a day, and it's and, and it's I... multiple a day, or or even a retail setting, right? I mean, think about a larger large retail center. I mean, you've got you've got again um, um, double digits probably worth of trucks a. Day. Day. You've got you've got um, um, materials. Co- you've got you've got product coming in and going out. You've got a lot of waste that has to has to be stored someplace on site till it's till it's hauled away. Um, and not to mention the other traffic then associated with that. So it, it's important to point out. You know, again, the the amount of traffic coming and going to a facility like this, um, even with 500 employees when fully operational, that's most likely across three shifts. So that's not 500 people all at once. Um, typically, these facilities, and you look at other facilities within the region. Again, you, you look at um, you know, there's a Pfizer facility in McPherson. There's there's facilities um, both in human health and animal health doing things in, in Lincoln, in Omaha, in, Kansas, in suburban Kansas City. Uh, oftentimes, those shifts are not aligned with busy traffic time. So you're not ending a shift and starting a new shift at 8 a.m. That's happening at 6 a.m., right? And getting off at, at, uh, at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And so um, the the amount of traffic resulting from from people coming and going employee wise is not is not nearly as as significant as, as it maybe could be made out to be, and then and then ultimately there's just not a lot of coming and going. Um, you don't have like a retail situation. We might have fifteen thousand people a day uh, or vehicles a day targeting that specific place to go because it's a retail center. Um, in fact, the estimates are are just in the you know hundreds of total outside visitors a year. Hundreds of visitors a year. So so what's that? Three a day, I guess. I mean, you know, you may have where you have more. Um, and then you you talked about five hundred employees who are in multiple shifts. So you may have three production shifts, then you may have an office shift, then you may have a cleanup shift. So in theory, you could have people coming and going at, at, at multiple times a day. So you don't even have more than 100 to 150 cars in any given moment. And all coming and going to a facility that is fully fenced, fully secured, um, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to seek this out as a destination that you're, that you're going to. You're going there for a reason and you have to have clearance to get in. And one other thing I think to point out, most people are commuting, their commuting pattern is to Manhattan in the morning, away from Manhattan in the evening. In this scenario, the commuting pattern will be away from Manhattan in the morning to Manhattan in the evening. And so you even are, are having less of an impact on congestion. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it is a, uh, ultimately the traffic studies um, that have been done and had to be done as part of the annexation rezoning replatting process and, and are required in these types of projects um, have shown that there is not a, based on the operation and based on the number of people, that there is not a significant impact uh, resulting directly from the project on those those local and, and regional traffic patterns. Uh, now, that's not to say that there aren't improvements that will ultimately come from this as it relates to 
uh, traffic infrastructure in that area. I think that the, you know, it's, it's the Excel road, highway 24, um, intersection, much like has been done at, at Green Valley road. We'll, we'll probably need some traffic control. So you're talking about things like a, a traffic light, um, turn lanes going in multiple, multiple directions, um, to, uh, to help with that flow. But that's actually something based off of past KDOT numbers and traffic studies that that intersection should have right now. And so ultimately this project is actually, uh, probably fast tracking that, uh, and, and we'll get it done sooner than it may have gotten done otherwise, despite the fact that, uh, that the numbers show that, that, uh, that need currently exists. Yeah. Not, and not necessarily because the need is increased, but because maybe there's more visibility Absolutely, and there may be funding available at the state level that otherwise might not have been available. Absolutely. Yep. So, so in, in essence, the, the impact based on the study is basically zero. Right. I mean, it's, there's no significant impacts in terms of traffic at that intersection because of this project. And in fact, there are a number of other, you could put a strip mall there, you could put a housing addition there, you could put, I mean, or, which might include apartments. I mean, there's a, a number of other developments where the, where the traffic situation is four, five, six, seven, eight times as bad. And without the kind of property tax return you're going to get here. And I think that goes back to that point when, when we first started talking about this, that at the end of the day, this is probably about as high economic return for as low of impact as, as we could hope to have in a, in a development of this size and scale in, in that location. And, and I think that's an incredibly important thing for, for people to remember that you know the reality of the number of vehicles coming and going because driven by employees, the reality of the number of trucks in and out of that facility or the lack of, of significant number of trucks in and out of the facility, the fact that it's a controlled facility and secured facility um, creates a situation where the overall impact when operational from, from vehicles uh, is, is not creating a, a, a safety hazard. And in fact, the, the situation when the improvements are made will probably be better than they are current day. Um, after after you have a, a signalized intersection and additional turn lanes added, and just an example of that is is Walmart. And just if you if you're ever interested, stand sit outside of Walmart. If you have if you have a whole lot of time on your hands, sit outside of Walmart and watch the number of cars and trucks that come in and out, and you and you get a feel. I know 500 sounds like a lot, but but you get a feel of what that's like. And and from a property tax standpoint, uh, Walmart's paying about three to five percent of what of what Scorpion is estimated they're going to pay. Uh, when when it comes back on the tax rolls, so just an incredible uh, amount of impact, or, uh, financial impact, uh, positive for the county, and so something to something to think about. Um, the last item that that we want to talk about because uh, it's kind of visible in that intersection, and I know in in the in the community meeting you were asked if if uh, uh, if you knew what the nickname of that area was, and and I think what you I, I don't remember what Swamp Angel Swamp Angel. Swamp Angel. So, I, I spent my fair share of time there as a uh, as a young person. And so there is, there is water that has stood in that area, correct? And um, so how does this impact that? How does, how does this project impact the, the, the potential water that's in that area? And what are you working on to uh, separate from the project that, that might have a positive impact on that? Yeah. Well, first off, I think it's important to remember that that you know our, our city of Manhattan, Pottawatomie County, there are codes and design standards in place to ensure public safety and ensure that development does not create a situation that puts the public unduly at risk. Right. And so, 
all of those rules are being followed plus um, on, on a project like this. Obviously, the folks involved in this understand this is a high visibility project and in a high visibility location. Um, the property owners there uh, that, that own own um, that area and, and points to the north and east uh, already prior to prior to the Scorpion project had made some um, uh, water runoff detention uh, improvements, uh, including a regional detention facility. And then all of the engineering specific to the Scorpion project uh, will will uh, ensure, and, and, the, um, and the engineering numbers support this, ensure that, uh, that it's not creating additional runoff from what currently exists on that site. In fact, those conditions will be better. Um, they, they will be not only is there regional detention up on the uh, north of the Scorpion site, um, but if you drive by there now, you can already see it where the fill work has been done. The southern edge of that site down closest to Highway 24 will actually be a, a stormwater runoff detention and um, and um, um, purification or, or water quality improvement um, facility. So that water has to be slowed down at the sediment has to, some of the sediment drops out of it um, before it moves on, moves on downstream. And so as it relates again, specifically to the project, specifically to the conditions on that, on that site after this development and the, and the other improvements that have been done in that area, um, stormwater runoff will probably be in a better spot than it was prior to those improvements being made. To be clear, you will still drive by there and see water. Absolutely. And that means it's working, not that it's not working. Correct? Absolutely. Part part of stormwater management involves slowing water down. Obviously, fast moving water um, picks up more sediment, um, does more damage along its way and creates more issues downstream. And so uh, part of that is is slowing down water. Um, uh, that's what detention does. And there are also other things downstream that that create a situation where, you know, if you go further east, north of Highway 20, four um, where 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 there sometimes is water standing uh, that's been improved significantly over what where it was five six years ago because of some of the improvements made along Excel Road and along Highway 24 uh, to the ditches um, there but but there still is a bit of a pinch point underneath the railroad uh, tracks uh, there further east of the Scorpion site that creates a situation where sometimes there's standing water there along the north side of Highway 24 and some of those agricultural fields and there's a problem there is a legitimate problem with uh, some of the I remember exactly the, the box culvert that goes underneath the Union Pacific Railroad. Uh, my my understanding in years of this business is you cannot do anything at a, with a railroad without the railroad's permission. And so you have been in contact with Union Pacific and 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 are working with them on a potential solution for that too, correct? Yeah, yes. And I think it's important to remember that there are a lot of parties involved in saying you've got you've got the Kansas Department of Transportation, you've got the city, you've got the county, you've got Union Pacific, you've got the um, other other state departments that play a role in that. That communication, and I want to give a lot of kudos to the to the both city of Manhattan and Pottawatomie County because, um, you know, th- there's a lot of additional work that goes into a project like this and a lot of additional communication with all of those other entities um, that have some kind of oversight or governance over over um, what's going on. And and they have been engaged. Uh, those conversations happen, um, you know, at the professional, the engineer to engineer level, but also at the at the upper levels of management. And so I think everybody is is rowing in the same direction here. Obviously, there's, there's always going to be issues issues as, as development continues, there's there's always going to be issues that have nothing to do with the project or have been mitigated um, as it relates to the project. And I think that's one important thing to remember is that is that uh, every effort has been taken to to A, follow guidelines and regulations, but B, ensure that that um, the conditions that are created because of the project uh, in many cases will actually be an improvement over, over current conditions. And it's not a company, any company, it's not any company's responsibility to fix a problem that's already been there. 
it's their obligation to make sure they don't cause any further problems. Absolutely. And the engineering that's been done on this project um, is, is uh, ensuring that that's the case. And in terms of, you know, obviously some people worry about as you're, as you're uh, making vaccines that, that there could be something you're potentially putting back into the sewer system. There's, there's an enormous amount of pretreat that goes on to what they're, what they're doing before it goes back because they want to be, make sure that that's safe. Yep, absolutely. And again, you don't have to look far in this community. Look at look at the kind of work that NBAF is doing and the and the requirements there. Um, obviously, this is this is at a, a much lesser level when it comes to the it comes to what's going into the into um, or coming out of the out of there and having to be purified before it goes into the system. And so, uh, all of those things again are being designed, engineered, and and um, and and meeting or exceeding. Um, the, the code or the regulatory levels. So one last item before we uh, depart here, and I know we've been a little longer today than normal, but I think it's important to make sure that we touch on all these issues. Um, alternate route, uh, or, or some people may know uh, the Junietta Bridge, or, or there's a number of different um, ideas that have been floated out there, but um, this could be something that could potentially spur the alternate route study, correct? Yes. I, as Development continues to move east out of Manhattan along the Highway 24 corridor. You look at a map and see that that's a, obviously a key um, point of flow both in and out of Manhattan on the east side. And and uh, the currently existing alternative routes are are reasonably long and and in many cases um, um, gravel county road. And so uh, you know as, as you look at what happens if there's a, what happens if there's a traffic accident, what happens if there's if there's flooding which has happened uh, you know along that uh, along that corridor a couple times going back over the last 75 years. You, you had the number. What was it, since ninety three seven days? Is that right? I, approximately? I think yeah. yeah. So the highway was closed in ninety three. Um, you know, and, and and obviously there was some concern here uh, four or five years ago when we had that really wet summer, and oh, yeah. and, and, yeah. and and some concern that if water was let out of Tuttle Creek through the spillway, that that you'd have similar conditions. Um, and so yeah, there is obviously concern that as a as that area continues to develop and additional traffic, and you have people getting to work and and getting home and everything else that that. Uh, providing some type of an alternative route would be would be beneficial, not just to folks that live out there, but folks that employ people that live out there and businesses out there. And I think that that's um, something that we're we're obviously supportive of exploring and 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 want to better understand um, what kind of options exist there and and what the what um, you know what the costs and benefits of those options are. And and uh, and it's an issue that obviously has been raised and dis been discussed for a number of years um, around here. Uh, but but one that as development continues out there, we think that the we think that uh, that will ultimately help drive that conversation. Um, and, and that sort of um, infrastructure improvements uh, often follow development, but it's pretty hard to get them out in front of development. Yeah, that's a great point. And so obviously the alternate route is something we've talked about since I've been here and I've been here a little over three years, but I know that uh, has been on the docket for even longer than that. And I think I think we're very interested in having that dialogue and, and hopefully we can use a project like this to spur that. So Darren, thank you for being with us. I know these are hard questions to go through, but you, you handle them like a champ. Uh, we would encourage people if they're interested to contact the chamber if you have specific questions. Uh, we're also going to set up an informational page uh, off the GMEP, our Greater Manhattan uh, Economic Partnership website. Uh, remind me, that's greatermanhattan.org. Is that correct? Correct. So you can go to greatermanhattan.org and we will have uh, some information on there. If you there's something from this you'd like to 
refresh your memory on. We'll have all that uh, on that site too, but give us a call if you uh, are interested in, in any other aspects of this project or any project, and, and we'll be happy to answer them. So thank you all for being with us today, and we'll look forward to season three uh, when we kick that off in a couple of months. This has been a, a fun season. Dave, you might hop on for a second. I know this is something that uh, we did a did a summary last year. Of course, we didn't have a one-hour uh, uh, podcast on as part of that, but uh, a lot of scorpion talk this year. Uh, anything sticks out of your mind in terms of of this season? I know I, know I can tell you my favorite, but I'll let you go first. Uh, I, I just think that, you know, we're just on the precipice of something just even greater than what we had thought about, you know, when, when NBAF was first being talked about and now it's becoming a reality this year. Uh, and then you have, you know, a project like Scorpion and we know that there's going to be more and it's just it's just really exciting. For those that this maybe they found this episode and they wanted to learn more about Scorpion and they haven't had a chance to listen to the past episodes. Two of my favorite episodes this season. Do you, do you know what they are off the top of your head? The one probably that we had with uh, Darren and Jack Alston. It was a good episode, no, but, but it was, didn't have anything to do with Scorpion. Mine didn't have anything to do with Scorpion. I really enjoyed the visit with Mike Madsen. Uh-huh, that was good. That was that one was of the, uh, I'm a big Mike Madsen fan. Um, aren't, I we, think, aren't we all? Uh, another one that I thought was very enlightening and and tackled some challenges was the DEI episode. That was a good one, yeah. Uh, and, you know, there was some uncomfortable moments in there where we talked about a lot of things, but it's really healthy to have that discussion and see how the chamber is in engaging with its membership and with the community in order to, to try to conquer some of these challenges. So I want to talk about that one for a minute. And this is another one where... Uh, give a little peek behind the curtain of of podcasting and how things work. But I think it, it taught us a valuable lesson. So we had had some initial dialogue about DEI and we said, let's have a podcast about it. And we had uh, Samarat Dirks, who's our chair, and uh, we had Lisa Sicily and we had Doug Barrett, Barrett um, who was is very active uh, now in the chamber. And uh, it, the first one was a very, we, we did the episode, it was very tough. What we discovered in the episode is we had not been talking to each other. And so we sat down right after that episode and we walked through a couple of things that Doug had an impression of something that the chamber was doing. And we had some impressions of some things that we thought were moving in a positive direction that were moving in a positive direction. We sat down, we worked all those things out. We came to a much better place to the point we said, hey, let's go back and re-record that because I think now that we've we sort of understand where we are and that we are making progress. Let's let's talk about that. And, and everybody was in on that. Um, and so I would encourage people, this is a topic that is really uncomfortable, but it's one that that is r- really necessary. And that was the moment when I went, we've got to have these uncomfortable conversations or we don't advance. And so um, the podcast actually got us way further along than we would have been otherwise. My two favorite episodes, La Butler, which was the first episode of this season. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite episodes. My, of course, for those that don't know, he he's was, a hero to he this was, community he and was me the, personally. The chamber president for for nearly twenty years and was my predecessor. Uh, and then C. Clyde Jones, uh, who is our uh, oldest living chamber chair. <laughs> uh, he was the chair, I believe, in nineteen sixty five. So, still a member. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. He's, so our, he's probably the oldest living member as well. As an individual, correct. Uh-huh. We have some businesses who – we have one business who's been a member longer. I'm not sure exactly. We had like a loose association before we were actually an official organization. Sure. So like Commerce Bank, I think, has actually been a member 
longer than we've been a chamber. Right. Um, right. But no, not as an under indi- that name, but, but as an individual, yes, yes, he he is our he's our longest uh, uh, serving member, and and again, one of my heroes and somebody that that I look up to. But great season, Dave. Uh, we appreciate all the hard work that you put in on this and and at the Ad Astrocast Studios. And uh, I would encourage people. If you're interested in podcasting, give Dave a call. He is an expert and does a great job. Well, and also give a, a shout out to our producer who uh, takes a lot of initiative in making sure that everybody sounds good and, and things get cleaned up. And, you know, without uh, that editing process, I, I sub all that out. That's not necessarily really high up in my, uh, in my uh, list of capabilities. So, uh, you know, I, I've got, a, uh, I've got three editors and, uh, they're all very helpful and, uh, you know, allows me to do more work. And I'm certainly appreciative of the chamber, uh, uh, supporting this little fledgling of a business model that there is no business model for. And, uh, and it's been enlightening for me. And I certainly hope that it's, uh, been beneficial for the chamber and your members. Well, it has. And of course we appreciate your location as well. It's not, well, I mean, most it, people don't know it's next door to it's like a 40 yard offices. sprint in the rain. Very easy. One person <laughs> also want to recognize who doesn't get a lot of recognition and, but is that, but is in every episode behind the scenes and that's Kara Ray. We haven't gotten her in front of a microphone uh, yet. That, you know? That's going to happen next, is next it? season. We're okay. going to get her on here. Did you get her to say yes to that? Uh, I don't have to get her to say yes. Okay. We can assign. I guess it, no. I guess in theory she could quit, but we hope that wouldn't happen. We no, probably that would be bad. It. We probably wouldn't push it that far. But you know, it's a real challenge to to negotiate schedules yep. with all the guests and everybody's busy. You know, you guys are busy. You know, uh, you know, and trying coordinating the hosts and the co-host and and the guests and you know my studio and you know that there's a lot to to trying to to figure out how to get everybody in on the show. Well, again. A peek behind the curtains. Other than you and me, Kara is the only person that's here for every episode. That's true. Appreciate her. All right, Dave, thank you for all you do for us. Darren, thanks for joining us today for this conversation. And we will see everybody in a couple of months when we start season three. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think MHK, a podcast produced by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. If you enjoyed the Think MHK podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe and share it out on your social media channels. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce.